0: I apologize for the late start. As usual, there were technical difficulties. I don't know why, but uh, for some reason, Discord was not picking up any audio, so we are not going to be doing our show through Discord tonight. It doesn't really matter. No one ever joins me anyway. Uh, But yeah, this is Dread Time Stories for uh, February 9th, 2022, and let me give you guys a free piece of advice. Don't trust exterminators to do their fucking job, right? Uh, I just got home to find out that the exterminator left my door open. uh, Either because they're too stupid to figure out how to work a fucking door, or they just didn't give a shit. Either way, they're gonna give a shit by the time I'm done. So, uh, yeah. Not happy. Uh, but, uh, we got a good show tonight. We're gonna do another Algernon Blackwood story. Uh... Which is, uh, The Man Who Found Out. And then we've got, uh, The Magnus Archives, episode 17, The Bone-Turner's Tale. And the August 28th, 1975 episode of CBS, in an adaptation of a Blackwood story, The Night of the Howling Dog. Uh, since our show is expected to go long tonight, we will not have a podcast pick, or a Strange Doctor Weird, but we will have, uh, believe it or not, bumps, So we're going to get right to it. Uh, We're going to get right to it. No, that's not what I want. Uh, We're going to get right to it with Algernon Blackwood's um, The Man Who Found Out. All this and more tonight's episode of Dread Time Stories.
1: Found Out. The Man Who Found Out. By Algernon Blackwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Found Out. A Nightmare. By Algernon Blackwood. Professor Mark Ebor, the scientist, led a double life, and the only persons who knew it were his assistant, Dr. Laidlaw, and his publishers. But a double life need not always be a bad one, and, as Dr. Laidlaw and the gratified publishers well knew, the parallel lives of this particular man were equally good. And indefinitely produced would certainly have ended in a heaven somewhere that can suitably contain such strangely opposite characteristics as his remarkable personality combined. For Mark Ebor, F. R. S., etc., etc., was that unique combination hardly ever met with in actual life a man of science and a mystic. As the first, his name stood in the gallery of the great, and as the second, Ah, but there came the mystery, for under the pseudonym of Pilgrim, the author of that brilliant series of books that appealed to so many, his identity was as well concealed as that of the anonymous writer of the weather reports in a daily newspaper. Thousands read the sanguine, optimistic, stimulating little books that issued annually from the pen of Pilgrim, and thousands bore their daily burdens better for having read, while the press generally agreed that the author, besides being an incorrigible enthusiast and optimist, was also a woman. But no one ever succeeded in penetrating the veil of anonymity, and discovered that Pilgrim and the biologist were one and the same person. Mark Ebor, as Dr. Laidlaw knew him in his laboratory, was one man, but Mark Ebor, as he sometimes saw him after work, was over, with rapt eyes and ecstatic face. Discussing the possibilities of union with God and the future of the human race was quite another. I have always held, as you know, he was saying one evening, as he sat in the little study beyond the laboratory with his assistant and intimate, that vision should play a large part in the life of the awakened man, not to be regarded as infallible, of course, but to be observed and made use of as a guidepost to possibilities. I am aware of your peculiar views, sir," the young doctor put in deferentially, yet with a certain impatience. For visions come from a region of the consciousness where observation and experiment are out of the question," pursued the other with enthusiasm, not noticing the interruption. And while they should be checked by reason afterwards, they should not be laughed at or ignored. All inspiration, I hold, is of the nature of interior vision, and all our best knowledge has come such as my confirmed belief, as a sudden revelation to the brain prepared to receive it. "'Prepared by hard work, first, by concentration, by the closest possible study of ordinary phenomena,' Dr. Laidlaw allowed himself to observe. "'Perhaps,' sighed the other, "'but by a process nonetheless of spiritual illumination. The best match in the world will not light a candle unless the wick be first suitably prepared.' It was Laidlaw's turn to sigh. He knew so well the impossibility of arguing with his chief when he was in the regions of the mystic, but at the same time the respect he felt for his tremendous attainments was so sincere that he always listened with attention and deference, wondering how far the great man would go and to what end this curious combination of logic and illumination would eventually lead him. "'Only last night,' continued the elder man, a sort of light coming into his rugged features. The vision came to me again, the one that has haunted me at intervals ever since my youth, and that will not be denied. Dr. Laidlaw fidgeted in his chair. About the tablets of the gods, you mean, and that they lie somewhere hidden in the sands, he said patiently. A sudden gleam of interest came into his face as he turned to catch the professor's reply. And that I am to be the one to find them, to decipher them, and to give the great knowledge to the world." "'Who will not believe?' laughed Laidlaw shortly, yet interested in spite of his thinly-veiled contempt. "'Because even the keenest minds, in the right sense of the word, are hopelessly—' "'Unscientific,' replied the other gently, his face positively aglow with the memory of his vision. "'Yet what is more likely,' he continued, after a moment's pause, peering into space, with rapt eyes that saw things too wonderful for exact language to describe, than that there should have been given to man in the first ages of the world some record of the purpose and problem that had been set him to solve. In a word, he cried, fixing his shining eyes upon the face of his perplexed assistant, that God's messengers in the far-off ages should have given to his creatures some full statement of the secret of the world, of the secret of the soul, of the meaning of life and death, the explanation of our being here, and to what great end we are destined in the ultimate fullness of things." Dr. Laidlaw sat speechless, these outbursts of mystical enthusiasm he had witnessed before. With any other man he would not have listened to a single sentence, but to Professor Ebor, man of knowledge and profound investigator, he listened with respect, because he regarded this condition as temporary and pathological, and in some sense a reaction from the intense strain of the prolonged mental concentration of many days. He smiled, with something between sympathy and resignation, as he met the other's rapt gaze. "'But you have said, sir, at other times, "'that you consider the ultimate secrets "'to be screened from all possible.' "'The ultimate secrets, yes,' "'came the unperturbed reply. "'But that there lies buried somewhere "'an indestructible record "'of the secret meaning of life, "'originally known to men "'in the days of their pristine innocence, "'I am convinced. "'And by this strange vision, "'so often vouchsafed to me, "'I am equally sure that one day "'it shall be given to me "'to announce to a weary world "'this glorious and terrific message.' and he continued at great length and in glowing language to describe the species of vivid dream that had come to him at intervals since earliest childhood, showing in detail how he discovered these very tablets of the gods and proclaimed their splendid contents, whose precise nature was always, however, withheld from him in the vision, to a patient and suffering humanity. "'The Scrutator, sir, well described Pilgrim as the Apostle of Hope,' said the young doctor gently, when he had finished." AND NOW IF THAT REVIEWER COULD HEAR YOU SPEAK AND REALIZE FROM WHAT STRANGE DEPTHS COMES YOUR SIMPLE FAITH. THE PROFESSOR HELD UP HIS HAND, AND THE SMILE OF A LITTLE CHILD BROKE OVER HIS FACE LIKE SUNSHINE IN THE MORNING. HALF THE GOOD MY BOOKS DO WOULD BE INSTANTLY DESTROYED, HE SAID SADLY. THEY WOULD SAY THAT I WROTE WITH MY TONGUE IN MY CHEEK. BUT WAIT, HE ADDED SIGNIFICANTLY, WAIT TILL I FIND THESE TABLETS OF THE GODS. WAIT TILL I HOLD THE SOLUTIONS OF THE OLD WORLD PROBLEMS IN MY HANDS. Wait till the light of this new revelation breaks upon confused humanity, and it wakes to find its bravest hopes justified. Ah! then, my dear Laidlaw—' He broke off suddenly, but the doctor, cleverly guessing the thought in his mind, caught him up immediately. "'Perhaps this very summer,' he said, trying hard to make the suggestion keep pace with honesty. "'In your explorations in Assyria, your digging in the remote civilization of what was once Chaldea, you may find—' what you dream of." The professor held up his hand, and the smile of a fine old face. "'Perhaps,' he murmured softly, "'perhaps.' And the young doctor, thanking the gods of science that his leader's aberrations were of so harmless a character, went home strong in the certitude of his knowledge of externals, proud that he was able to refer his visions to self-suggestion, and wondering complacently whether in his old age he might not after all suffer himself from visitations of the very kind that afflicted his respected chief. And as he got into bed and thought again of his master's rugged face, and finely shaped head, and the deep lines traced by years of work and self-discipline, he turned over on his pillow and fell asleep with a sigh that was half of wonder, half of regret. It was in February, nine months later, when Dr. Laidlaw made his way to Charing Cross to meet his chief, after his long absence of travel and exploration. The vision about the so-called tablets of the gods had meanwhile passed almost entirely from his memory. There were few people in the train, for the stream of traffic was now running the other way, and he had no difficulty in finding the man he had come to meet. The shock of white hair beneath the low-crowned felt hat was alone enough to distinguish him by easily. "'Here I am at last!' exclaimed the professor, somewhat wearily, clasping his friend's hand as he listened to the young doctor's warm greetings and questions. "'Here I am, a little older, and much dirtier than when you last saw me!' He glanced down laughingly at his travel-stained garments. "'And much wiser,' said Laidlaw with a smile, as he bustled about the platform for porters and gave his chief the latest scientific news. At last they came down to practical considerations. "'And your luggage? Where is that?' "'You must have tons of it, I suppose,' said Laidlaw. "'Hardly anything,' Professor Ebor answered. "'Nothing, in fact, but what you see.' "'Nothing but this handbag?' laughed the other, thinking he was joking. "'And a small portmanteau in the van,' was the quiet reply. "'I have no other luggage.' "'You have no other luggage?' repeated Laidlaw, turning sharply to see if he were in earnest. "'Why should I need more?' the professor asked simply. "'Something in the man's face, or voice, or manner,' The doctor hardly knew which, suddenly struck him as strange. There was a change in him, a change so profound—so little on the surface, that is, that at first he had not become aware of it. For a moment it was as though an utterly alien personality stood before him in that noisy, bustling throng. Here in all the homely, friendly turmoil of a Charing Cross crowd a curious feeling of cold passed over his heart, touching his life with icy finger. "'so that he actually trembled and felt afraid. "'He looked up quickly at his friend, "'his mind working with startled and unwelcome thoughts. "'Only this,' he repeated, indicating the bag. "'But where's all the stuff you went away with? "'And have you brought nothing home, no treasures?' "'This is all I have,' the other said briefly. "'The pale smile that went with the words "'caused the doctor a second indescribable sensation of uneasiness. "'Something was very wrong.' Something was very queer. He wondered now that he had not noticed it sooner. "'The rest follows, of course, by slow freight,' he added tactfully, and as naturally as possible. "'But come, sir, you must be tired and in want of food for after your long journey. "'I'll get a taxi at once, and we can see about the other luggage afterwards.' It seemed to him he hardly knew what he was saying. The change in his friend had come upon him so suddenly, and now grew upon him more and more distressingly. Yet he could not make out exactly in what it consisted.' A terrible suspicion began to take shape in his mind, troubling him dreadfully. "'I'm neither very tired nor in need of food, thank you,' the professor said quietly. "'And this is all I have. There is no luggage to follow. I have brought home nothing, nothing but what you see.' His words conveyed finality. They got into a taxi, tipped the porter, who had been staring in amazement at the venerable figure of the scientist, and were conveyed slowly and noisily to the house in the north of London, where the laboratory was, the scene of their labours of years. And the whole way Professor Ebor uttered no word, nor did Dr. Laidlaw find the courage to ask a single question. It was only late that night before he took his departure, as the two men were standing before the fire in the study that study where they had discussed so many problems of vital and absorbing interest that dr laidlaw at last found strength to come to the point with direct questions the professor had been giving him a superficial and desultory account of his travels of his journeys by camel of his encampments among the mountains and in the desert and of his explorations among the buried temples and deeper into the waste of the prehistoric sands when suddenly the doctor came to the desired point with a kind of nervous rush almost like a frightened boy. "'And—and you found—' He began stammering, looking hard at the other's dreadfully altered face, from which every line of hope and cheerfulness seemed to have been obliterated, as a sponge wipes markings from a slate. "'You—you found—' "'I found,' replied the other, in a solemn voice, and it was the voice of the mystic rather than the man of science. "'I found what I went to seek.' The vision never once failed me. It led me straight to the place like a star in the heavens. I found the tablets of the gods. Dr. Laidlaw caught his breath and steadied himself on the back of a chair. The words fell like particles of ice upon his heart. For the first time the professor had uttered the well-known phrase without the glow of light and wonder in his face that had always accompanied it. You have brought them? he faltered. "'I have brought them home,' said the other, in a voice with a ring like iron, "'and I have deciphered them.' "'Profound despair, the bloom of outer darkness, "'the dead sound of a hopeless soul freezing in the utter cold of space, "'seemed to fill in the pauses between the brief sentences. "'A silence followed, during which Dr. Laidlaw saw nothing but the white face before him "'alternately fade and return, and it was like the face of a dead man.' They are, alas, indestructible, he heard the voice continue with its even, metallic ring. Indestructible, Laidlaw repeated mechanically, hardly knowing what he was saying. Again a silence of several minutes passed, during which, with a creeping cold about his heart, he stood and stared into the eyes of the man he had known and loved so long. ay, and worshipped, too. The man who had first opened his own eyes when they were blind and had led him to the gates of knowledge, and no little distance along the difficult path beyond, the man who, in another direction, had passed on the strength of his faith into the hearts of thousands by his books. "'I may see them?' he asked at last, in a low voice he hardly recognized as his own. "'You will let me know their message?' Professor Ivor kept his eyes fixedly upon his assistant's face as he answered with a smile that was more like the grin of death than a living human smile. When I am gone, he whispered, when I have passed away, then you shall find them and read the translation I have made. And then, too, in your turn you must try, with the latest resources of science at your disposal to aid you to compass their utter destruction. He paused a moment, and his face grew pale as the face of a corpse. Until that time, he added presently, without looking up, I MUST ASK YOU NOT TO REFER TO THE SUBJECT AGAIN, AND TO KEEP MY CONFIDENCE, MEANWHILE, ABSOLUTELY." A YEAR PASSED SLOWLY BY, AND AT THE END OF IT, DR. LAIDLAW HAD FOUND IT NECESSARY TO SEVER HIS WORKING CONNECTION WITH HIS FRIEND AND ONE-TIME LEADER. PROFESSOR Ebar WAS NO LONGER THE SAME MAN. THE LIGHT HAD GONE OUT OF HIS LIFE. THE LABORATORY WAS CLOSED. HE NO LONGER PUT PEN TO PAPER OR APPLIED HIS MIND TO A SINGLE PROBLEM. In the short space of a few months he had passed from a hale and hearty man of late middle life to the condition of old age, a man collapsed and on the edge of dissolution. Death, it was plain, lay waiting for him in the shadows of any day, and he knew it. To describe faithfully the nature of this profound alteration in his character and temperament is not easy, but Dr. Laidlaw summed it up to himself in three words. Loss of Hope The splendid mental powers remained indeed undimmed, but the incentive to use them, to use them for the help of others, had gone. The character still held to its fine and unselfish habits of years, but the far goal to which they had been the leading strings had faded away. The desire for knowledge, knowledge for its own sake, had died, and the passionate hope, which hitherto had animated with tireless energy the heart and brain of this splendidly equipped intellect, had suffered total eclipse. The central fires had gone out. Nothing was worth doing, thinking, working for. There was nothing to work for any longer. The professor's first step was to recall as many of his books as possible, his second, to close his laboratory and stop all research. He gave no explanation, he invited no questions. His whole personality crumbled away, so to speak, till his daily life became a mere mechanical process of clothing the body feeding the body, keeping it in good health so as to avoid physical discomfort, and, above all, doing nothing that could interfere with sleep. The professor did everything he could to lengthen the hours of sleep, and therefore of forgetfulness. It was all clear enough to Dr. Laidlaw. A weaker man, he knew, would have sought to lose himself in one form or another of sensual indulgence—sleeping draughts, drink, the first pleasures that came to hand. Self-destruction would have been the method of a little bolder type, and deliberate evil-doing, poisoning with his awful knowledge all he could, the means of still another kind of man. Mark Ebar was none of these. He held himself under fine control. Facing silently and without complaint the terrible facts, he honestly believed himself to have been unfortunate enough to discover. Even to his intimate friend and assistant, Dr. Laidlaw, he vouchsafed no word of true explanation or lament. He went straight forward to the end, knowing well that the end was not very far away. And death came very quietly one day to him, as he was sitting in the armchair of the study, directly facing the doors of the laboratory, the doors that no longer opened. Dr. Laidlaw, by happy chance, was with him at the time, and just able to reach his side in response to the sudden painful efforts for breath, just in time, too, to catch the murmured words that fell from the pallid lips like a message from the other side of the grave. "'Read them, if you must, and if you can, destroy. But—' His voice sank so low that Dr. Laidlaw only just caught the dying syllables. "'But never, never give them to the world.' And like a grey bundle of dust, loosely gathered up in an old garment, the professor sank back into his chair and expired— But this was only the death of the body. His spirit had died two years before. The estate of the dead man was small and uncomplicated, and Dr. Laidlaw, as sole executor and residuary legatee, had no difficulty in settling it up. A month after the funeral he was sitting alone in his upstairs library, the last sad duties completed, and his mind full of poignant memories and regrets for the loss of a friend he had revered and loved, and to whom his debt was so incalculably great. The last two years, indeed, had been for him terrible. To watch the swift decay of the greatest combination of heart and brain he had ever known, and to realize he was powerless to help, was a source of profound grief to him, that would remain to the end of his days. At the same time an insatiable curiosity possessed him. The study of dementia was, of course, outside his special province as a specialist, But he knew enough of it to understand how small a matter might be the actual cause of how great an illusion, and he had been devoured from the very beginning, by a ceaseless and increasing anxiety, to know what the professor had found in the sands of Chaldea, what these precious tablets of the gods might be, and particularly—for this was the real cause that had sapped the man's sanity and hope—what the inscription was that he had believed to have deciphered thereon. The curious feature of it all, to his own mind, was, that, whereas his friend had dreamed of finding a message of glorious hope and comfort, he had apparently found, so far as he had found anything intelligible at all, and not invented the whole thing in his dementia, that the secret of the world, and the meaning of life and death, was of so terrible a nature that it robbed the heart of courage and the soul of hope. What then could be the contents of the little brown parcel the professor had bequeathed to him with his pregnant, dying sentences? Actually, his hand was trembling as he turned to the writing-table and began slowly to unfasten a small, old-fashioned desk, on which the small gilt initials M.E. stood forth as a melancholy memento. He put the key into the lock and half-turned it. Then suddenly he stopped and looked about him. Was that a sound at the back of the room? It was just as though someone had laughed, and then tried to smother the laugh with a cough. A slight shiver ran over him as he stood listening. "'This is absurd,' he said aloud, "'too absurd for belief that I should be so nervous. It's the effect of curiosity unduly prolonged.' He smiled a little sadly, and his eyes wandered to the blue summer sky and the plain trees swaying in the wind below his window. "'It's the reaction,' he continued, "'the curiosity of two years to be quenched in a single moment. The nervous tension, of course, must be considerable.' He turned back to the brown desk and opened it without further delay. His hand was firm now, and he took out the paper parcel that lay inside without a tremor. It was heavy. A moment later there lay on the table before him a couple of weather-worn plaques of grey stone. They looked like stone, although they felt like metal, on which he saw markings of a curious character that might have been the mere tracings of natural forces through the ages or equally well, the half-obliterated hieroglyphics cut upon their surface in past centuries by the more or less untutored hand of a common scribe. He lifted each stone in turn and examined it carefully. It seemed to him that a faint glow of heat passed from the substance into his skin, and he put them down again suddenly, as with a gesture of uneasiness." A very clever or a very imaginative man, he said to himself, who could squeeze the secrets of life and death from such broken lines as these. Then he turned to a yellow envelope lying beside them in the desk, with the single word on the outside in the writing of the professor, the word, TRANSLATION. Now, he thought, taking it up with a sudden violence to conceal his nervousness, now for the great solution now to learn the meaning of the worlds, and why mankind was made, and why discipline is worth while, and sacrifice and pain the true law of advancement. There was the shadow of a sneer in his voice, and yet something in him shivered at the same time. He held the envelope as though weighing it in his hand, his mind pondering many things. Then curiosity won the day, and he suddenly tore it open with the gesture of an actor, who tears open a letter on the stage, knowing there is no real writing inside at all. A page of finely written script in the late scientist's handwriting lay before him. He read it through from beginning to end, missing no word, uttering each syllable distinctly under his breath as he read. The pallor of his face grew ghastly as he neared the end. He began to shake all over as with ague. His breath came heavily in gasps. He still gripped the sheet of paper, however, and deliberately— as by an intense effort of will read it through a second time from beginning to end, and this time as the last syllable dropped from his lips the whole face of the man flamed with a sudden and terrible anger. His skin became deep, deep red, and he clenched his teeth. With all the strength of his vigorous soul he was struggling to keep control of himself. For perhaps five minutes he stood there beside the table without stirring a muscle. He might have been carved out of stone. His eyes were shut, and only the heaving of the chest betrayed the fact that he was a living being. Then, with a strange quietness, he lit a match and applied it to the sheet of paper he held in his hand. The ashes fell slowly about him, piece by piece, and he blew them from the window sill into the air, his eyes following them as they floated away on the summer wind that breathed so warmly over the world. He turned back, slowly, into the room, Although his actions and movements were absolutely steady and controlled, it was clear that he was on the edge of violent action. A hurricane might burst upon the still room at any moment. His muscles were tense and rigid. Then suddenly he whitened, collapsed, and sank backwards into a chair like a tumbled bundle of inert matter. He had fainted. In less than half an hour he recovered consciousness and sat up. As before, he made no sound, not a syllable passed his lips. He rose quietly and looked about the room. Then he did a curious thing. Taking a heavy stick from the rack in the corner, he approached the mantelpiece, and with a heavy shattering blow he smashed the clock to pieces. The glass fell in shivering atoms. "'Cease your lying voice forever,' he said, in a curiously still, even tone. "'There is no such thing as time.' He took the watch from his pocket, swung it round several times by the long gold chain— "'smashed it into smithereens against the wall with a single blow, "'and then walked into his laboratory next door "'and hung its broken body on the bones of the skeleton "'in the corner of the room. "'Let one damned mockery hang upon another,' he said, smiling oddly. "'Delusions, both of you, and cruel as false.' "'He slowly moved back to the front room. "'He stopped opposite the bookcase where stood in a row "'the scriptures of the world, "'choicely bound and exquisitely printed,' the late professor's most treasured possession, and next to them several books signed, Pilgrim. One by one he took them from the shelf and hurled them through the open window. A devil's dreams, of devil's foolish dreams, he cried with a vicious laugh. Presently he stopped, from sheer exhaustion. He turned his eyes slowly to the wall opposite, where hung a weird array of eastern swords and daggers, scimitars and spears, the collections of many journeys. He crossed the room and ran his finger along the edge. His mind seemed to waver. No, he muttered presently, not that way. There are easier and better ways than that. He took his hat and passed downstairs into the street. It was five o'clock, and the June sun lay hot upon the pavement. He felt the metal doorknob burn the palm of his hand. Ah! "'Laidlaw, this is well met,' cried a voice at his elbow. "'I was in the act of coming to see you. I've a case that will interest you, and besides, I remember that you flavoured your tea with orange leaves, and I admit—' It was Alexis Stephen, the great hypnotic doctor. "'I've had no tea today,' Laidlaw said, in a dazed manner, after staring for a moment, as though the other had struck him in the face. A new idea had entered his mind. "'What's the matter?' asked Dr. Stephen quickly. "'Something's wrong with you.' It's this sudden heat! Or overwork! Come, man, let's go inside." A sudden light broke upon the face of the younger man, the light of a heaven-sent inspiration. He looked into his friend's face and told a direct lie. "'Odd,' he said, "'I myself was just coming to see you. I have something of great importance to test your confidence with. But in your house, please,' as Stephen urged him towards his own door, "'in your house.' It's only around the corner, and I—I cannot go back there, to my rooms, till I have told you. "'I'm your patient, for the moment,' he added stammeringly, as soon as they were seated in the privacy of the hypnotist's sanctum, and I want uh the, my dear Laidlaw, interrupted the other, in that soothing voice of command which had suggested to many a suffering soul, that the cure for its pain lay in the powers of its own reawakened will. "'I'm always at your service, as you know.' "'You have only to tell me what I can do for you, and I will do it.' He showed every desire to help him out. His manner was indescribably tactful and direct. Dr. Laidlaw looked up into his face. "'I surrender my will to you,' he said, already calmed by the other's healing presence. "'And I want you to treat me hypnotically, and at once. "'I want you to suggest to me,' his voice became very tense, "'that I shall forget.' Forget till I die everything that has occurred to me during the last two hours. Till I die, mind," he added with solemn emphasis, "till I die." He floundered and stammered like a frightened boy. Alexis Stephen looked at him fixedly, without speaking. "And further," Laidlaw continued, I want you to ask me no questions. I wish to forget for ever something I have recently discovered, something so terrible and yet so obvious that I can hardly understand why it is not patent to every mind in the world, for I have had a moment of absolutely clear vision, of merciless clairvoyance, but I want no one else in the world to know what it is, least of all, old friend, yourself. He talked in utter confusion and hardly knew what he was saying but the pain on his face and the anguish in his voice were an instant passport to the other's heart. "'Nothing is easier,' replied Dr. Stephen, after a hesitation so slight that the other probably did not even notice it. "'Come into my other room, where we shall not be disturbed. I can heal you. Your memory of the last two hours shall be wiped out as though it had never been. You can trust me, absolutely.' "'I know I can,' Laidlaw said simply, as he followed him in. An hour later they passed back into the front room again. The sun was already behind the houses opposite, and the shadows began to gather. "'I went off easily?' Laidlaw asked. "'You were a little obstinate at first, but though you came in like a lion, you went out like a lamb. I let you sleep a bit afterwards.' Dr. Stephen kept his eyes rather steadily upon his friend's face. "'What were you doing by the fire before you came here?' he asked, pausing in a casual tone as he lit a cigarette and handed the case to his patient. "'I—let me see—oh, I know, I was worrying my way through poor old Ebor's papers and things. I'm his executor, you know. Then I got weary and came out for a whiff of air.' He spoke lightly and with perfect naturalness. Obviously he was telling the truth. "'I prefer specimens to papers,' he laughed cheerily. "'I know, I know,' said Dr. Stephen, holding a lighted match for the cigarette. His face wore an expression of content. The experiment had been a complete success, the memory of the last two hours was wiped out utterly. Laidlaw was already chatting gaily and easily about a dozen other things that interested him. Together they went out into the street, and at his door Dr. Stephen left him with a joke and a wry face that made his friend laugh heartily. "'Don't dine on the professor's old papers by mistake!' he cried as he vanished down the street. Dr. Laidlaw went up to his study at the top of the house. Half-way down he met his housekeeper, Mrs. Fewings. She was flustered and excited, and her face was very red and perspiring. "'There have been burglars here,' she cried excitedly, "'or something funny. All your things is just anyhow, sir. I found everything all about everywhere.' She was very confused. In this orderly and very precise establishment it was unusual to find a thing out of place. "'Oh, my specimens!' cried the doctor, dashing up the rest of the stairs at top speed. "'Have they been touched, or—' He flew to the door of the laboratory. Mrs. Fewings panted up heavily behind him. "'The laboratory ain't been touched,' she explained breathlessly. "'But they smashed the library clock, and they've hung your gold watch, sir, on the skeleton's hands. And the books that weren't no value they flung out of the window, just like so much rubbish. They must have been wild drunk, Dr. Laidlaw, sir.' The young scientist made a hurried examination of the rooms. Nothing of value was missing. He began to wonder what kind of burglars they were. He looked up sharply at Mrs. Fewings standing in the doorway. For a moment, he seemed to cast about in his mind for something. "'Odd,' he said at length. "'I only left here an hour ago, and everything was all right then.' "'Was it, sir?' "'Yes, sir.' She glanced sharply at him. Her room looked out upon the courtyard, and she must have seen the books come crashing down, and also have heard her master leave the house a few minutes later. "'And what's this rubbish the brutes have left?' he cried, taking up two slabs of worn grey stone on the writing-table. "'Bath-brick, or something, I do declare.' He looked very sharply again at the confused and troubled housekeeper. "'Throw them on the dust-heap, Mrs. Fewings, and—and let me know if anything is missing in the house, and I will notify the police this evening.' When she left the room he went into the laboratory and took his watch off the skeleton's fingers. His face wore a troubled expression, but after a moment's thought it cleared again. His memory was a complete blank. "'I suppose I left it on the writing-table when I went out to take the air,' he said, and there was no one present to contradict him. He crossed to the window and blew carelessly some ashes of burned paper from the sill, and stood watching them, as they floated away lazily over the tops of the trees. End of The Man Who Found Out
2: Truth is stranger than fiction, and this is the proof. This is Ripley's.
3: Believe it or
4: not.
3: The largest clan in Scotland isn't MacDonald. It isn't Campbell either. According to statistics compiled by the Scottish Post Office, the largest clan in Scotland is Smith. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the clock that was repaired by a child. After ticking off time for 195 years, the clock in the tower of the Church of Penn stopped in 1910. For the next 15 years, Europe's finest clockmakers tried in vain to get the clock to run. Then one more person asked permission to try. Patricia Cuthbert succeeded where master clockmakers had failed. The clock has been running ever since, repaired by a 13-year-old girl. Believe it or not.
0: That was The Man Who Found Out by Algernon Blackwood. Uh, great writer, love Algernon, and he was one one of uh, Lovecraft's uh, favorite writers, so Lovecraft desperately wanted to be British. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we're going to get to tonight's episode of the Magnus Archives, episode 17, The Bone Turner's Tales. We'll be right back after this on Dreadtime Time Stories.
5: St. Quill presents the Magnus Archives, Episode Seventeen The Bone Turner's Tale. of Sebastian Adacoya, regarding a new acquisition at Chiswick Library. Original statement given June 10th, 1999. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. Books are amazing, aren't they? I mean, when you think about what they really are. People don't give the actuality of language, the weight it deserves, I feel, words are a way of taking your thoughts, the very makeup of yourself, and giving them to another, putting your thoughts in the mind of someone else. They are not a perfect method, of course, as there's plenty of scope for mutation and corruption between your mind and that of the listener, but that doesn't change the essence of what language is. Spoken aloud, though, the thought dies quickly if not picked up simple vibrations that vanish almost as soon as they are created, though if they find a host then they can lodge there, proliferate and maybe spread further. Still, it is not a reliable method in terms of a thought's endurance, as humans are fragile creatures and rarely last a century. A book, though, is another story. There are written texts that have outlived the civilizations that created them. Imagine, thoughts hundreds thousands of years old, preserved, and ready to be taken again. Corrupted, or translated perhaps, by a culture that does not understand them, but still, ideas that have outlived by lifetimes the mind that first conceived them. Will the thoughts that first ran through Shakespeare's head ever stop being thought by someone, somewhere, and a book so dense with a mind's fossilised creations? Is it any wonder they have been ascribed such power throughout the ages? or that an old library with heavy tomes covering every wall seems to have such a weight to it, beyond the physical presence of the texts it holds. I used to work at Chiswick Library. I didn't have such ideas back then, though, I just knew I loved books, always had. And so when the opportunity arose to work in my local library, I jumped at the chance. I had been a voracious reader ever since I was old enough to hold a book for myself, and even before that my mother tells me I would pester her constantly to read to me. I suppose you might say my mind has always been receptive to the thoughts that lurk in the written page. Still, Chiswick Library is a long way from the cramped and austere libraries you're probably imagining. It's light and airy, with bookshelves and carpets that speak more of cash-strapped local councils than of the rich majesty of knowledge. It has an extensive children's section, and the vast majority of its stock are dog-eared paperbacks of true crime, literary fiction and reference books. It has a modest collection of books on tape, and the atmosphere, though quiet, is far from oppressive. In a word, I would sum the place up as unthreatening. It was three years ago when this happened. I had already been working there for about a year when the book first turned up. Now, we used to buy all of our books new, and I never did any of the acquisitions for the library, so I couldn't say when or where it might have been bought from. But it looked old and pretty beaten up when I first noticed it. It was handed back with four other books at the front desk, and as I was scanning them through, I noticed that one of the barcodes didn’t seem to match up. The barcode and ISBN both registered as being that of train spotting by Irvin Welsh, but the book itself was an almost featureless black paperback, with a title on the front in faded white serif font, The Bone Turner’s Tale. I was a bit confused and called the librarian Ruth Weaver over to ask about it. She didn't recall seeing it ever before, but stuck in the front was the ex-libris bookplate of Chiswick Library, as well as a lending label with a handful of stamps going back several years. Ruth shrugged and told me not to worry too much about it. We'd get it recorded and put on the system properly, but something about the situation bothered me, so I decided to check the record of the man who had returned it. His name, at least according to his library card, was Michael Crewe, and sure enough, three weeks ago he had borrowed four books from us. Specifically, the four others he had returned. I suggested to Ruth that perhaps he was a self-published author who was trying to trick his way onto our shelves, and she laughed, saying it was probably it. Although why anyone would go to the trouble of faking it just to get on the shelves of Chiswick Library was beyond her. The book looked worn, though, like it had seen decades of being read, with a line creased down the spine and one half of the cover faded from the sun. Nor, from what I could see, Did it list any author at all? It was at that moment that Jared Hopworth came in, and I had to put the book to one side. Jared and I had once been fast friends, growing up on the same road, attending the same schools. We had spent much of our early life as inseparable. But he had always been, well, not to put too fine a point on it, thick as mud. And when I went away to university, he stayed behind. I think he saw it as something of a betrayal. And when I finally returned, I knew immediately something had changed between us. He spent the time I was away becoming a bit of a crook. And upon my return, began what would eventually become a campaign of petty terror. He was always very careful to stop before he did anything that might get the police involved. And I guess there was enough leftover affection from a childhood spent together that I never really thought about reporting him. It was... Oh. um, Hello, Elias. Do you have a moment? Uh, Not really. I'm sort of in the middle of something. I understand. It's just that Miss Hearn has lodged a complaint. A complaint? I could just as easily complain about her wasting my time. That's not how it works, Jonathan. I wouldn't have even needed to do the recording if Rosie had kept her equipment in better condition. Regardless, I would prefer that you not antagonise anyone connected to the Lucas family. They are patrons of the Institute, after all. Fine. Fine. I'll be more lovely. Now, could I get back to work? Very well. By the way, have you seen Martin? Oh, he's off sick this week. Stomach problems, I think. Blessed relief, if you ask me. Statement resumes. It was worst when Jared visited the library, because that inevitably meant that he was bored enough to seek me out for harassment. Sure enough, he started chatting with me, meaningless jibes that served to wait it out until Ruth, who didn't know about Jared's problems with me, returned to her office and closed the door. As soon as she had done so, he turned in a single movement, tipped over the metal returns cart, spilling the recently received books all over the floor. He smiled at me and apologised. I did my best not to show any irritation or indeed any reaction at all, as I slowly walked around and bent down to start collecting them. As I rose to my feet, I felt an impact on the back of my head and staggered. Behind me, Jared stood holding the book I had put aside, the bone-turner's tail, and had apparently picked it up to hit me with. But rather than offering me a fake apology or further violence, instead his eyes were locked on the book. We stood there in silence for a few seconds until he said something about needing something new to read, turned around and walked off. I was, I will admit, a bit unsettled. As far as I could recall, I had never seen Jared read... well, anything, really. The look in his eyes when he had left had something in it not entirely unlike fear. Still, it was a welcome relief to have him gone, and I quickly tidied up the rest of the books before Ruth noticed anything amiss. There was nothing else I recall that happened that day at the library, but on the way home afterwards I passed by Jared's house. I had moved back in with my parents while I got everything sorted out after university, and he had never moved out of his childhood home, so we still lived on the same street. It was late September at this point, so by the time I had walked back from the library it was dark, and I noticed a small shape moving in the pool of orange light below the street lamp. As I got closer, I realised with a slight start that it was a rat. And not a dirty, wild rat, but a large, white one. Quite well kept, and clearly once a pet. But there was something very wrong with it. It was dragging itself slowly, pulling from the front legs, and I saw that the back half of it was... flat. As though deflated somehow. I thought it must have been run over, but there was no blood or sign of crushing, nor did it seem to be in any actual pain. It just had a back half that flopped and twitched obscenely as it made its gradual way across the lighted pavement and out into the darkness. I just stood there and watched, transfixed by it, until it disappeared from view. Thinking about it now, I remember its head was turned at a strange angle, far further round than it should have been, although I might be getting confused many of these experiences run together when I look back on them. There was no light on in Jared's house, but I hurried home quickly after that. I didn't see Jared again for some time. At first I was just happy for the space, and as the days turned into weeks I started to feel something I wouldn't have expected to. Worry. If it hadn't been for the way he had left last time, it probably wouldn't have bothered me, but he had looked so strange. And even without him coming to the library, it was rare I would go a week without seeing him. By now it had been almost a month. Still, I resisted the urge to go to his house and check. If it turned out he was fine, then I'd be inviting a whole world of unpleasantness. And besides that, I reminded myself, he wasn't my problem anymore. It was late October when Jared's mother came in. It was near the end of the day, and outside was already dark. I was putting up a display about good Halloween reeds before heading home, when I heard the door open. I turned around, and there she was. It took me a few seconds to recognize her, if I'm honest. I hadn't seen much of her in the years since Jared and I had been close, and she had aged noticeably. Mrs. Hopworth wore a bulky overcoat, though it wasn't that cold yet, and her arm hung down in a sling. Something about the angle of the arm and how it hung there seemed faintly abnormal, and I wondered if she had broken it. When I asked Mrs. Hopworth if she was okay, she just stared at me, her eyes burning with hatred. With her good arm, she reached into her coat and pulled out a small black paperback. She threw it on the floor without saying a word and turned to leave. I couldn't help myself. I asked her if Jared was all right. She spun back and started to swear violently at me told me I had no business with her son and that I and my books were to stay away from him. As she spoke, I couldn't look away from her arm, and the odd ways it twisted as she gestured, how her fingers seemed to bend the wrong way. I was glad that Ruth had gone home early as I didn't want her to witness the disturbing confrontation I had now apparently caused. When she had finished, Mrs. Hopworth spat towards me, though I noticed she was careful to avoid spitting at the book that now lay on the floor between us, and left. I put down the copy of Stephen King's Misery that I now realised I had been clutching and approached the discarded volume that lay on the carpet. The battered black cover seemed the same as when I had first seen it weeks ago with that faded white title on the front. The Bone Turner's Tale. I reached down to pick it up, but before I did so, a thought flashed across my mind, a memory of the last time I had seen Jared, and I grabbed some tissues from the desk before using them to pick up the book. Even then, I felt my skin crawl as I held it. I decided not to deal with it that night. I wasn't entirely sure that reading it in the daytime would be that much better, but... shadows cast from outside seemed to have gotten that much starker since the book had been brought back into my library, and it scared me. I placed it in the book returns cart and left, double-checking I had firmly locked the door behind me. It rained heavily that night. My room is in a converted attic, and when the weather is bad, it's as if I can hear every raindrop against the window that is just above my bed. It wasn't a storm, There wasn't the wind for it. It was just that heavy, pounding rain that drummed and beat on the glass above me. I couldn't sleep. There was a nagging apprehension in my mind, something that, after three hours lying in bed, had turned into almost a panic. How could I have just left the book? There was something wrong with it, that much was obvious. What if Ruth came in earlier than I did tomorrow and took it? What would happen to her? Should I have destroyed it? That last thought was quickly pushed away. I wasn't sure I had it in me to destroy a book, even one with such a strangeness to it. It surprised me just how easily I accepted that the Bone-Turner's Tale had dark powers, but I suppose I've always felt that books have a sort of magic to them, so it was really just a confirmation of what I had suspected deep down for a long time. It was two in the morning when I decided that I couldn't just leave it there overnight. I got up, dressed, and quietly headed out into the rain towards the library, making sure to take my gloves. My coat was supposed to be water resistant, but still managed to soak in the twenty minutes it took me to walk there. I had the key from locking up that night and deactivated the alarm as I entered. It was almost pitch black inside, and part of me wanted to keep it that way. I turned on as many of the lights as I could without it being immediately obvious outside the building. It wasn't many, and I still had to half feel my way through the foyer and into the library proper. As I approached the desk, the book returns cart where I had left the bone turner's tail, I began to step less cautiously. It was darker in that corner of the library, and I put a hand out to steady myself against the handle of the small metal cart. I'd taken my gloves off at that point, and my hand came away wet. I quickly fumbled for the torch I had snatched before heading out and turned it on. Red dripped and pulsed from the cart, soaking the pages and forming a small pool around it. The books were bleeding. I laughed at that. It seemed so appropriate somehow, so utterly correct, that those neighbouring books should suffer, should be contaminated by it. Just as it seemed right and proper that when my torch found the bone-turner's tail, it was dry, unmarked by the gory scene around it. I put my gloves back on and carefully took out that sinister volume and placed it on the desk. Perhaps I should have fought harder against the temptation to look inside, but my curiosity was too strong gloves made turning individual pages almost impossible, and I still had enough good sense to keep them on. So I just opened it on a few random pages and started reading. Perhaps I was being paranoid. After all, I touched the book with my bare hands when it was first given into the library and had no problems. But the image of Jared's mother wouldn't leave my head. How her arm had twisted when it moved. I decided to keep the gloves on. It was written in prose, and certainly seemed to be a story of some kind. The part I read dealt with an unnamed man, at various points referred to as the Bone-Turner, the bonesmith, or just the Turner, watching an assembled group of people as they made their way into a small village. It's unclear from what I read whether he is travelling with them or simply following them, but I remember being unsettled by the details he observed in them the way the parson would move his hand over his mouth whenever he stared too long at the nuns, or how the cook looked at the meat he prepared with the same eyes that looked at the pardoner. It was only at that point that I realised the book was describing the pilgrims from the Canterbury Tales. Now, this certainly wasn't some lost section of a Chaucer classic. It was written in modern English, with none of the archaic spelling or pronunciation of the original. Besides that, the writing itself was of questionable quality. There was something compelling about it, though. The debate about how finished the Canterbury Tales were, well, it's a very real debate. In the prologue, over a hundred tales are promised, but the most complete surviving version doesn't even reach two dozen. The book just sort of ends, with Chaucer adding a short epilogue imploring God for forgiveness, a plea that is generally read as sarcastic or rhetorical. I flicked ahead a few pages and found the bonesmith had apparently crept up to the miller while he slept. It described him silently reaching inside him and... It's a bit hazy. All I remember clearly is the line. And from his rib a flute to play that merry tune of Marrow Took. And as for the rest, I don't recall in detail. But I know that I almost threw up and that the miller did not survive. This was on page 16, and it was a thick book. I turned to the frontispiece, desperately curious as to how this book had ended up in our library. In the harsh light of the torch, I could see the creases and peeling edges of the Chiswick Library label, which usually meant it had been removed and restuck, or taken from another book entirely. I could even see the edges of another label underneath, Using a pair of scissors, I carefully peeled off the top one, but was disappointed. It was the label for another library, probably the last place it had been left. Although I think it must have been in Scandinavia, because it was something like the library of Jurgensburg, or Jurgentlite, or Jurgelicht, or something like that. It didn't help me. I was all set to return to reading the thing and I heard the sound of breaking glass behind me. I turned around to see Jared Hopworth standing in front of the shattered window. Or at least, I assume it was Jared, as it demanded the book from me in Jared's voice, but wore loose-fitting trousers and a thick coat with a hood that almost completely covered his face. Or its face. He was longer than Jared had been, and stood at a strange angle as though his legs were too stiff to use. When he gestured for the book I saw that his fingers looked sharp, as though the skin at the ends were being pushed into a tight point by something inside. I told him that the library was closed, because at that moment I could think of nothing else to say. He ignored me and demanded again that I give him the book. That was when I did something a little rash which is to say I punched him. I had never really thrown a punch in anger before, or even desperation, so it came as quite a shock to me when I managed to drive a single solid fist into his solar plexus. But as I did this, and this is the part that still gives me nightmares, I felt his flesh give way, and almost retract, drawing me in close, Then I felt his ribs shift, shut tight around my hand as though his ribcage were trying to bite me. They were sharper than I would have thought possible. And at last, this was what actually started me screaming. Never before or since have I ever screamed like that, and I'm still a bit surprised I'm capable of making such a noise, but there you have it. In my panic, I dropped the copy of The Bone-Turner's Tale, and in less than a second, Jared was on it. He released my hand and grabbed it with a frantic desperation before he turned to run back out the way he came in. I started to chase after him until I saw how he was moving. How many limbs he had. He had added some extras. That was the moment it finally all got too much for me. I stopped running. It wasn't my book. It wasn't my responsibility. And I had no idea what I was dealing with. So I didn't. I just stood there in a daze and watched the thing that was once Jared disappear out into the rain. I never saw him again. The police turned up soon after. Someone had apparently heard my screams and called in a report. I spun some tale about falling asleep at my desk and being woken up by an attempted robbery. God knows how I explained the bloody books, because it wasn't some disappearing phantom. It took weeks to get out. Everyone seemed to believe me, though, and miraculously I kept my job. I haven't seen Jared in the years since, and I haven't done any further research on the book. The best scenario I can possibly imagine is that this statement is the last I ever need to hear or speak about Jared Hopworth or the Bone-Turner's Tale. Statement ends. Well, this makes me deeply unhappy. I have barely scratched the surface of the archives, and have already uncovered evidence of two separate surviving books from Jürgen Leitner's library. Until he mentioned that, I was tempted to dismiss much of it out of hand, as it stands now, I believe every word. I've seen what Lightner's work can do, and this news, even seventeen years out of date, is still very concerning to me. I'm going to have a discussion with Elias as to what we can do to address the issue. I know he'll just give me the old record and study, not interfere or contain speech again, but I at least need to make him aware of it. Tim and Sasha have cross-referenced the events here with police reports and Sure enough, there was a warrant issued for the arrest of Jared Hopworth for breaking and entering, as well as assault. He was never found, though, and the crimes weren't serious enough to keep the case active for very long. I've been doing as much research myself as possible, but the book seems to have vanished along with him. I asked Martin to try and hunt down Mr. Arakoya himself for a follow-up, but have been informed that he passed away in 2006. He was found lying dead in the middle of the road on the night of April 17th. Despite the fact that there was no crushing or trauma marks on the body, the inquest ruled it a hit-and-run car accident due to the mangled position in which he was found. It was a closed casket funeral. Recording ends. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced by Alexander J. Newell and Murray Porter and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at the Rusty Quill, or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening.
2: not.
3: Frances Isabella, wife of the fourth Marquis of Bath, insisted all members of the household wash their money every day, believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about an astonishing builder of roads. One wonders whether the people of Ceylon pay honor to a certain foreigner, a foreigner named Skinner. Skinner was a road builder and engineer who literally carved Ceylon out of the darkness of jungles and swamps with some 3,000 miles of highways built over a period of 50 years. As awesome as these tasks must have been, the most tremendous feat in his career was an 11-mile stretch of road built when he was just 16 years old. Believe it or not. (laughs)
0: And that was episode 17 of the Magnus Archives, The Bone-Turner's Tale. Anyway, uh, we're going to go straight to... We're not going to do the Strange Doctor Weird tonight. We're going to go straight to our all-time radio selection for tonight. It is the August 28th, 1975 episode of CBS Radio Mystery Theater, which is an adaptation of another one of Algernon Blackwood's um, stories. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater version is called Night of the Howling Dog. Um, this one's going to be... Uh, we're probably going to run a few minutes long. Oh, nope, nope, No! No! No!
6: no, 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 no. nope,
0: No! I killed the music. That's not what I wanted to do. That's okay. We'll just... Uh, there we go. Um, the show will likely go a couple minutes long. Um, so, again, we're not going to do... A podcast pick or Tales from the Table today. However, I will remind you about all the wonderful programs you can hear on Radio for Humans right after this.
6: On KIXI, Seattle, CBS Mystery Theater. Tonight's adventure Night of the Howling Dog, starring Mason Adams with E.G. Marshall as your host. The Night of the Howling Dog is based on the English novelist Algernon Blackwood's classic tale of a camping party's ordeal on a remote Baltic island. Now, here's E.G. Marshall. It's been said that you can always recognize a werewolf simply
2: by shaking hands. If the handshaker has hair on the inside of his palms, QED, a werewolf. Of course, this is an old wives' tale. As for me, I'm perfectly willing to accept the fact that the whole idea of werewolves was absurdly exaggerated by the superstitious during the Middle Ages. However, I would like some explanation of the concept everyone recognizes today of the subconscious. Something inside a person, which can take over and utterly control a person's mind and actions, particularly under great stress. Get it off me! Get it away! I see the damn thing! It's a wolf! I'll kill it! Don't shoot, man! Don't shoot! Or be prepared to spend the rest of your life on your knees praying for the Lord's forgiveness. The mystery drama Night of the Howling Dog was especially adapted from the classic by
6: Algernon Blackwood for the Mystery Theater by Murray Burnett and stars Mason Adams and Norman Rose. It is sponsored in part by Buick Motor Division and by the Florida Orange Growers. I'll be back shortly with Act One.
2: The following fable is presented to make you want to buy a Buick. As a kid, everything I had was somebody else's. My,
7: he certainly has his mother's eyes.
2: And his father's hair. Boy, what a hairy little person. Well, I finally got something to call my own. A beautiful Buick LeSabre. With my kind of room, my kind of ride, and my kind of style. Heck, I even let my dad borrow it now and then because I love to hear people say, my, he certainly has his son's Buick. Buick. Dedicated to the free spirit in just about everyone. Come on, America. Refresh in the natural way. Have a glass of summer juice anytime of
7: day. Refresh with summer sent pure orange juice from Florida. Anita Bryant here reminding you that orange juice is rich in vitamin C with minerals too because even in summer, good nutrition should never be on vacation. Orange juice, America,
4: summer
6: juice.
7: From the Florida Orange Growers.
6: Here's a tip from your Better Business Bureau on the metric system. Have you noticed the metric measurements on packaged foods at your supermarket lately? Soon the metric system of measurement will be commonplace all around the country, and you should be ready for it. Look carefully at the metric measurements on the foods you buy. They may seem bewildering at first, but they make a lot more sense than the system of measurement we're currently using. For example, right now, fluid measures are expressed in gallons, quarts, and pints. Dry measures are expressed in bushels, pecks, dry quarts, and pints. And a dry quart is 16% larger in volume than a liquid quart. By using the metric system, however, you only need to know one unit of measurement for liquid volume, the liter. All other fluid measurements are multiples of the liter. And similarly, dry volumes are measured by the gram and multiples of the gram. This has been a tip from your Better Business Bureau on the metric system. Pages of fiction are filled with surrogates passionately pleading the causes of other lovers to beautiful ladies. The characters of Cyrano de Bergerac, John Olden courting Patricia for Miles Standish,
2: and the devil himself serenading the beautiful Margarita on behalf of Faust. These are only a few examples that come immediately to mind.
6: However, I had never heard of a lover deputizing an animal to forward his suit
2: until now. And to bring you this amazing story, I introduce an eyewitness. It's strange that as I approach the end of my years, I now find more people willing to believe the stories of my adventures with my employer, the famed psychologist of the occult, Dwayne Carter. When I was working so closely with Duane and writing down these excursions into the dark recesses of men's soul and minds, I found nothing but skeptics. Today, perhaps since we know more, we now realize there are still things we don't know. At any rate, let me start at the beginning of this incredible phenomenon. It all began when Duane and I said goodbye at London's Waterloo Station on a hot July day in 1912. Now, Ernie, we've got a full fall schedule, so you be sure and get plenty of rest. I want you to be raring to go when we meet in Stockholm on August 15th. Unless, of course, you should send for me sooner. Send for you? If I'm going to need you, Duane, then I'm hardly going to have a restful vacation. Nonsense. Both of us know the strange effects a stay in the wilderness can have on people who wear the trappings of civilization the rest of the year. Well, you were the one who prescribed getting back to nature Is the prescription that straightened out Timothy Manning's life. If he hadn't come to consult you, he'd still be preaching in a pulpit, making his wife and daughter's lives miserable. But Timmy isn't the only member of your little party. Are you? Are you trying to sound a warning? If so, you'll have to be more specific. Well, I have nothing specific in mind... Just a feeling that will very probably turn out to be wrong. You go ahead and enjoy yourself, Ernie. And forget what I said. Duane must have known the one thing I could not do was forget what he said. Duane Carter's whole reputation as a scientist was based on his uncanny sixth sense. An intuition that enabled him to handle cases too bizarre for other psychiatrists. So I was more than ordinarily alert as our boat approached the shore of the small island we'd chosen for our camp. Easy there, Annie. Peter, lend me your hand and we'll pull the cutter further up the beach. Then unload, and the ladies will see to the tents and other supplies. Ah, this is the life. Room for body and mind. Just the place for a man to refuel his soul. And how does a man go about doing that, Reverend? <laughs> I'll let Peter Sangre answer that. Peter, here's a perfect opportunity for you to show Ernie how much you've learned since you started studying with me. There'll
7: be time enough for theology lessons later, Dad. Right now, Peter could be very useful in giving Mother and me a hand with some of these supplies.
2: Oh, I'll be happy to, any time at all. I'm always very happy to help Miss Manning. <laughs> Peter Sangry was a young Canadian studying for the ministry under the Reverend Manning's tutelage. He'd been staying with the family back in New York, and it was obvious that he'd been smitten by the laughing eyes of Joan Manning. So obvious that it was sometimes embarrassing to watch the depth of yearning in his eyes. This was painfully evident the first night when Peter, Joan, and I joined forces exploring our island. Well, I never realized the Baltic Sea had this many small islands so close to shore. It's so beautiful.
4: The
7: water's so calm.
2: I wish we had the canoe.
7: We could paddle to the other islands while we still
2: have the northern lights. Good idea. You and Peter wait here, and I'll go across and fetch it.
7: No, let Peter get the canoe. You and I will wait here.
2: Uh, You bet. I'll be
0: back as soon as I can.
2: Well, Joni, what was that all about?
7: You found me rude.
2: Let's say very definite about not wanting to be alone with Peter.
7: Oh, dear. It was very obvious then. I'm sure he noticed.
2: I wouldn't worry about him, Joan. Surely you know he's madly in love with you, and you shouldn't feel upset if you don't like him.
7: I don't dislike him. It's just that... I see his eyes on me, seeking, even demanding, and, and I'm afraid he might... Do or say something that would lead to unpleasantness.
2: You, Joan Manning, the fearless, frightened?
7: Uh, listen, I'm serious. There's something about Peter that makes me feel creepy. Something I don't think he knows himself. I'll confess it draws me, attracts me, but at the same time, it makes me afraid.
2: Joan, I don't know whether you're trying to tell me you're afraid of sangri or uh, something in you.
7: My heart tells me there's something in Peter's sangri something buried deep inside him. Something dark and perhaps even dangerous. And I'm desperately afraid and
2: desperately curious. How long has Peter been studying for the ministry with your dad? Almost a year. And this is the first time that you've had this feeling about him?
7: Yes. It only happened since we came here. Away from New York and civilization. It seems almost what he's been waiting for. What we've both been
4: waiting
2: for. The business of setting up camp for the first few days relegated that strange conversation to the back of my mind. But the Reverend Timmy brought it back sharply with a strange prayer one night. We give thanks to you, O Lord, for our safe arrival. We also give thanks for our excellent health and pray this may continue for all of us and the weather be fair, the fish be plentiful, and that nothing from the kingdom of darkness nor any evil thing disturb our nighttime tranquility.
7: Why, Daddy, what brought that on?
2: Just a thought, Joan. It came into my mind, and I let the Lord know of it. Reverend, I don't think we should put thoughts like that in the Lord's mind. I think I can explain, Mr. Simpson. Were you, Peter? Yes, sir. You see, I don't know if any of the others felt it. But I know that I sense something. Some presence here on the island with us. But that's impossible. Our exploration
7: showed there were two things lacking on our little island. Fresh water and animals.
2: I didn't say anything about an animal, Joan. I said a presence. Oh, come, children. Perhaps my prayer was out of place. Let's all be off to our tents and a good night's rest.
7: I know someone's trying to frighten me. I'm, I'm coming out and see whoever it is that's playing this childish game.
2: Joan, I'm really sorry about that prayer last night. It obviously upset you and made you dream about some animal or other growling around your tent. Now
7: I tell you... I distinctly heard the howling of a dog. Didn't anyone else hear it?
2: Of course not. No one else heard it because you dreamed it. Because of the lack of water, there's not an animal of any size on the whole island. You know we have to fetch our water from that little island across the way.
7: I know what I heard, and it wasn't a dream. Well,
2: there's nothing to prevent some animal from swimming over. A deer, for instance, might easily land in the night and decide to take a look around. Well, look, Mr. Simpson...
7: I'd like you and the other men to come along with me. Mother, you stay here. You've already seen the tracks. And I want Daddy to apologize to me and admit that I'm not having bad dreams. All right, now. There, look. Look at those marks on the outside of the tent. Are you going to tell me that they're not animal
2: tracks? Certainly they are. These tracks appear to have been made by some type of fairly large animal. I I apologize. I'm sorry I doubted you, darling. Oh, Daddy,
7: I'm so frightened. I'm just plain
6: scared.
2: <laughs> Mr. Simpson, look here. Look at these marks. The brute must have been scratching around my tent, too. It certainly looks that way. These are the same marks. Did you hear anything? Not me. Since I've come here, I sleep like a log. Reverend, would you come over here to Peter's tent for a minute? Coming, Simpson? It's really strange. I wonder if Mrs. Manning heard anything. After all, her tent is right next to Jones. Timmy, Timmy, what do you make of those tracks? Well, looks like an animal, wide enough. Tell you what I'd appreciate, Simpson, if you don't mind. Well, I'm here to help. Why don't you take... Joan out for the day, on a hike or in the canoe, and see if you can calm her down.
7: I thank you for taking me on this canoe trip today, but I know Dad suggested
2: it. That's right. But I thank you anyway.
7: It's kind of you.
2: Have you noticed any change in our friend Peter Sangri?
7: You mean his attitude towards
2: me? Good Lord, no. If anything, his devotion has become even more obvious. What do you mean, changed? Well, he seems much more self-reliant. Almost as if he... As if... I don't know how to put it, but... Almost. Almost as if this is where he belongs. So you sense something strange about him, too. No, 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 no. Not strange. It's just that he... He seems to fit in better here than when I first met him. He's he's more confident. He's sure of himself. Yes,
4: I
7: felt that. And the more confident he gets, the more frightened I get.
2: For the next few days and nights, there was no excitement. And our camp life seemed to have settled into a routine. Until one night, the quiet was shattered by screams coming from... (laughs)
7: She's saying... Sp- oh, Daddy, Daddy. The same growling and scratching as before. And... And there was a great tearing blow and the tent was
2: ripped open right next to my face. Your tent. There's no doubt about that, Reverend. You can see the gap where it, the thing or whatever it is ripped right through. And that dog again. We must do something. The first thing to do is to get over to the stockade and get a fire going. What's going on? I brought my rifle. If it's that animal again, let me have yeah, it. Come on, Peter, help me start a fire. What in the world do you think it is, Mr. Simpson? It surely can't be a dog. It can't be very far away. We'll organize a hunt at once, this very minute. Right, slow slow down. Slow down, Reverend. Action, Ernie. Any action to stop panic. We've gone over every inch of this island, and there's no living creature on it besides ourselves. Peter's right, Reverend. Not even a squirrel could have gotten by us. All right. I know what it was. A dog from one of the farms on the larger island. A dog that's turned wild. It was attracted by our fires and the smell of food, and now it's gone back to where it came from. That's what it was. Oh,
7: Daddy, you don't really believe what you just said. You can't believe that. You just can't.
6: Cultists insist that events have
2: souls. Souls given to them by the emotion and thoughts of those concerned with them. This in itself is a terrifying concept, because I can think of the souls of
6: some events that must have shriveled with terror and agony that's indescribable.
2: I'll be back with Act Two and the very strange events on the Baltic Island in a moment. issues of life and vacations in the untrammeled wilderness have long been extolled in song and story. We've all longed for the starry nights with the wind sighing softly through the friendly branches of the protecting trees. But nature also has a savage side. And sometimes a trip to the wilderness can bring out whatever primitive savage lurks within us. I hate the rain especially when I'm in the woods. I thought you could use today to catch up on your studying, Peter. Reverend says I'll pass my exams with flying colors and become a full-fledged minister in the fall. Well, Timmy should know. He should know more about his own daughter, too. What? What, what does that mean? Oh, nothing. I guess we're all upset by... by what's happened with Joan. Well, of course we are, but I don't understand what you meant about Joan's father. Well, forget it. I'm sorry I said it. I just wish one of us would be able to track down that dog or go whatever it is that's gotten Joan in such a state. She should be all right with her mother. You know that she's moved into Mrs. Manning's tent now, and there should be no more nonsense. Nonsense? Is that what you think is so frightening for Joan? Maybe you should join forces with her father no trouble going to sleep after my rather strange conversation with the young Sangri, but suddenly I found myself wide awake. I jumped from dead sleep to absolute wakefulness in a single instant. The rain had stopped. I went outside and sniffed the delicious clean air. A pallid half-moon just sinking into the sea threw a spectral light between the trees. And then, just twenty feet away, across the path. I saw a head thrust round the edge of Peter Sangri's tent. The head of an animal. An animal that had the appearance of no animal I'd ever seen before. Terror struck me. I knew it was the animal. And as I watched, riveted to the spot, the thing turned, slipped between the trees, and vanished. Wake up, Peter! Wake up! Why? Well... Peter, come on, come on, come on. What is it? Peter, come on. The the beast... The beast has been here in your tent. I swear it was about to leap at your throat. What what, what do you say? Let's not waste time. Quick, get your gun before Joan has attacked. Joan? Oh, yes. All right. Yes, let's get over there. I'm with you. Yes. I see the tracks. It's a wolf. That's what it is. A wolf lost among the islands and starving to death. Desperate. I don't think so. It was unlike any animal I've ever seen. Whatever it is, it must be killed. Joan must be protected. I'll sleep all day and sit up all night and shoot the beast the minute I see. No. No, I don't think this is anything that we can deal with. I have a better plan. I'm going to send for the one man I know who can help. Dwayne Carter. He will know what to do. Dwayne Carter? The psychic doctor? Yes. Then you think what... It's something of that sort. I am certain of it. Although nothing Dwayne Carter ever did took me completely by surprise. I was astonished to find a letter care of general delivery in the Waxholm post office. It was from Carter, giving a Stockholm address and stating that a phone call would bring him to Waxholm that same day. And so that night, Dwayne Carter joined us on the island. And after dinner, with Peter also sitting in, I told him of the strange events. You did well to send for me, Ernie. What we have to deal with here is a werewolf. A werewolf? Surely these things are... Rare enough, I'm happy to say, Mr. Sangree. Now, you say that no one has been injured so far. No, surely there can't be any question of this poor, starved beast injuring anybody, can there? I hope not. But what makes you think the creature is starved? What? I... I can't tell you it, except that I felt from the beginning it was in pain and starved. Although why I feel this never occurred to me until you asked. Mm, You really know very little about it, then. I really know nothing at all. Nothing.
7: Help! Help! Get it off me! Keep, Keep it away! Oh, please, please!
2: There it is. Let me take a shot at you. No, no. No, Don't shoot, Reverend. Help your wife take care of your daughter. And then meet Ernie and me at the stockade. How is Joan? Oh, the beast tore her arm. Thank the Lord my wife woke up and the thing ran off. But it's not serious. Well, that's something to be thankful for. Here, here's your coffee. Thanks. This will be our last breakfast on this cursed island. We'll strike camp and... Get away today. I think, Reverend, for the safety of all concerned... it would be better not to leave the island just now. Both Mrs. Manning and I are grateful for your presence, Dr. Carter. But I can't help thinking that perhaps all of our problems would have been solved... if you hadn't stopped me when I had the brute in my gun sights. Had you fired and had you killed the thing, you would have committed murder. Murder? Now you've got me completely confounded... How can killing this this thing possibly be murder? Well, this thing, as you refer to it, Reverend, is a man, one of this camping party, a man gone savage. Well, I saw the thing. That was no man. That was a dog or a wolf. Of course, you see, this is a case of modern lycanthropy. Lycanthropy, werewolves those superstitions of the middle ages can have no actual significance today we are face to face with a modern example of what i believe has always been a profound fact fact oh come now dr carter you've heard of the astral body or as i prefer to describe it the fluidic body it has the power under certain conditions of projecting itself and becoming visible to others well aren't you talking about two different things altogether doctor astral body is something people can accept because it's a human form, not an animal. Yes, that's true. But the fluidic body can assume forms other than human, and such forms will be determined by the dominating thought and wish of the owner. You've lost me. You've never really understood the effect of this primitive camping life upon all the members of your party. Old, old instincts deeply buried in the subconscious. Instincts no one ever dreamed they had suddenly come forth in a primitive setting. Well, I'm honestly trying to follow you, Doctor, but ancient instincts and atavism are terms which hardly explain a roaming animal with teeth, claws, and a thirst for blood. That last is your term, not mine. But it's a very exact one. I would say that that what we have here is an animal that's impelled to bathe in the very heart's blood of the one it desires. And if I didn't know your reputation, I'd say you have a very strange way of reassuring people. Fear is rooted in ignorance. Reverend, let's suppose that an extremely sensitive young man has fallen very deeply in love with your daughter. Back in New York, this moonstruck young fellow isn't taken very seriously by Joan, and he knows it. Nevertheless, he loves, and he knows that, too. Does he know what you're trying to tell me? If you're asking if he's conscious of the change that comes over him, no. Oh, but I still refuse... Reverend, surely you don't question the violence that's in all mankind. It lurks underneath the surface. And here, on this island, where we shed the trappings of civilization, he feels strong and free and the feelings of love he's been suppressing back in New York batter at his consciousness, determined to force their way to the surface. And at night, when he sleeps, and his mind is relaxed, he dreams. The beast that ripped Joan's arm was no dream. Granted, but this wild force within him becomes fierce and savage when he sleeps, and his frustration turns into half-devotion... ...half-beast. And that is the form that his astral body might well assume. Well, if I grant these wild assumptions... ...why should I feel easier in my mind? Well, if you realize that this transformation isn't deliberate... ...then you can also understand that... ...well, that it is not necessarily evil. You say that to me after seeing Joan's arm. I tell you that this werewolf is no more than the... ...passionate and fierce instincts of a man... Frustrated by day, looking by night for his mate. That night, we built the largest campfire we'd ever had. And all of us retired early. However, Reverend Timothy, Duane, and I had agreed to meet in Duane's tent. I'm going to open the tent flap now. Keep your voices down and strike no matches. Reverend, is the camp asleep well, Peter is. I can't answer for the women. I think they're sitting up. Mm, that may be for the best. Uh, could you fill me in on what we're supposed to be watching for? I- is it an animal? Or... Report the least sound to me and do nothing on your own. Nothing. You understand? Right. All right. Shh. Something out there? I'm not sure. Now listen. you you stay here. I'll let you know. <laughs> Me and I sat alone for a few minutes, but the good reverend was restless. I don't much care for this waiting game with you and Carter, but he wouldn't hear of me staying with my family. He said it might prevent something happening. He knows. You must trust him. Well, it's either this astral body, or double business, as he calls it, or else it's possession, as described in the Bible. But I'm sure of one thing. Whatever it is, It's bad. I brought my rifle. You brought your rifle, but Duane said... And my Bible. Well, one is useless in this situation, and the other is dangerous. The only way we can win in this game is to do what Duane tells us. That's the safest way, believe me. I'm warning you, Ernie. If anything happens to Joan tonight, I'll shoot first and pray afterwards. Now, what the devil is Carter up to? Sneaking around Peter's tent and making gestures. He looks weird, disappearing in and out of the fog. I think Just I... wait, as he told us. Remember, he has the knowledge that we both lack. Well, he seems to be coming back now. Yes. He's heading this way. Peter. Peter is in a very deep sleep. His condition is almost cataleptic. Which means, Doctor? The fluidic body may be released at any moment. Now, I've taken steps to imprison it in the tent... It can't get out until I permit it. Be alert for any signs of movement now. I'd better hold on to my rifle. Reverend, I told you there is to be no shooting unless you want a murder. Anything done to the double acts by repercussion on the physical body of a man himself. Now, you better take the cartridges out of that rifle now. All right, Doctor. But I hope and pray you know what you're doing. It was with poor grace that Timmy slipped the cartridges out of his rifle and then all three of us sat and waited for whatever was to come. It seemed hours, but in reality it was only a few minutes before we heard it. That's Peter's tent shaking like that, Doctor. It's trying to get out. I hear it. All right, Reverend. Quickly, the women's tent. All right. I'll take my rifle just in case. I can always use it as a club. I urge you, Reverend, to be careful what you do, because I told you this case is complicated, and it's my belief that your daughter and Peter are made for each other, and I think she knows it every bit as much as he does. Men in
6: love have been known to do foolish things. An English monarch gave up a throne for love. And we've heard of men who turned themselves inside out just to please their
2: beloved. But uh, for me, at any rate, this is the first time I've heard of a lover turning himself into a werewolf. I'll be back with Act Three in just a moment.
6: Statistically, there are more people who claim to have sighted UFOs... ...than there are those who claim to have seen ghosts. But the lowest of all in number... ...are those who claim to have experienced the numbing terror... ...of
2: having come face to face with a werewolf. Come along with me now as we share that experience... ...with one of the few who have seen and dealt with that dread creature. From where Duane and I stood... It was less than 20 feet to Peter saint gris tent. And although the wind had freshened considerably, it wasn't the wind that was making the canvas of his tent swell and shake. That shaking was caused by something inside the tent trying to get out. The hair in the navel of my neck rose. As we approached the tent, Duane held up his hand. Ernie. Ernie, I want you to see it before I release it, so that if anything untoward should happen, you may be able to deal with it. Me. But the way you reassured the Reverend, you said that if Ernie, he... you know that we're dealing with tremendous forces that are still only partially understood. What do you want me to do? Well, as we approach the tent, I want you to kneel down and tell me what you see when I hold the flap back. All right. Oh. There's something in there, all right. But you must be able to see it and describe it before I chance releasing it. As my eyes became accustomed to the dim interior of the tent. I could make out Sangri's form lying under the blankets, while over him and around him flew a dark mass. All I could make out was a pointed muzzle and sharp ears, plainly visible against the sides of the tent, and I also caught an occasional gleam of fiery eyes and white fangs. There's nothing to fear. I told you that before. How are you... How are you holding that... that thing there... There are some things I don't think you should know, Ernie. But I'll only tell you that it has to do with electrical impulses from the mind. You see, we all emanate a certain amount of electricity. And, well, just think of it as brain waves. Now step back a little now because I'm going to release it. What will it do? Hopefully it will listen to me and I will be able to guide it. And if it doesn't? We'll cross that bridge if and when we come to it. Now step back. Keep your eyes Fixed on the tent flap. Ernie, watch closely. And then I saw it. An animal. Neck and muzzle thrust forward. An animal about the size of a calf, leaner than a mastiff. And yet, Peter was easily recognizable. It was the head of an animal. But the face... It was Peter Sangree. Sangree. It is werewolf double. What do we do now? Well, I'll, I'll try to speak with him. Sangri, Peter Sangri, do you recognize me? Do you realize what it is that you really desire when you assume this form? Sangri, you must listen to me. Good Lord, Duane, can that be? Of course. A mating call. You shouldn't be surprised. It is probably Joan. You must remember she practically told you that she was afraid of something deep down in her. But she's not... The only salvation for both Joan and Peter is for me to lead Sangri's double to the object for which it yearns. Listen, that's coming from across the lagoon. Duane, Peter's double, a werewolf! He's gone! Although my eyes had been fixed upon the animal in front of the tent... Somehow it disappeared. One moment it was there, muzzle lifted, sniffing the wind, and then it was gone like a thing of the wind and a trick of vision. Quickly, Ernie, start following through the trees. Where will you be? I must check out Peter's tent. Why? What for? To make sure that his werewolf double cannot return until I permit it. I'll join you in a few moments. After circling Peter's tent, Duane caught up to me and we ran at full speed through the woods, always guided by the now fairly loud howling. Then suddenly the trees fell away and we were on the edge of the lagoon and there, sharply defined against sea and sky. Joan! Ernie, stand still and remain quiet. But there's something wrong with her. She looks half asleep. She is fully asleep and we must not wake her. What are you saying? She's sleepwalking. If we wake her, the shock might injure her permanently. But the werewolf, what was? Will... She's on her way to meet him. You see, she's been irresistibly drawn to him from the beginning. Well, and how do you explain the torn tent the other night and the wounds on her arm? Wasn't she asleep then? Not deeply enough. She awoke and was terrified instead of pleased. Now, however, she's in a deep enough sleep to throw off the conventional shackles of civilization that have bound her and admit this man is her mate. Then she really loves Peter? Yes, profoundly. The canoe just coming around the point, isn't that... isn't that Reverend Timothy? Yes, it is. What's he doing here? Probably following Joan. At least he had the sense to take the canoe and not wake her. But what will he do when he. Ernie, says... you're right. We're going to have to warn him. That's too late. There goes Peter's double. Quick, get to Joan. The Reverend's got a gun. But you made him unload it. Well, he's got hold of a pistol. Hand aside, Joan. Out of my line of fire. Put that gun down, you fool. Put it. Oh, oh, uh... Idiot. Ernie, get to Joan. Help her.
7: What? what are all of you doing here? Where's Peter? Where is he? Oh,
2: thank the Lord. Joni, you're all right.
7: Where did Peter go? Oh, he disappeared so suddenly. He cried out that he was hurt.
2: We hope that he wasn't hurt seriously. I hope the brute's dead. Don't ever say that, Reverend. Unless you want murder on your soul.
7: Murder? Why do you use that word? If anyone's done anything to him, then he's done it to me, too. Because
2: Peter is... is... I know, I know, my dear. He's your love. That I think we can bring him to you. Or perhaps you to him. But we must go to your tent and wait for me. Ernie, take care of her until I get back. Reverend, you better come with me. While Duane and the Reverend went off together, I helped Joan back to her tent.
7: You must let me go to him, Mister Simpson. I know he needs you
2: me. You heard Duane. He said we should wait for him. Uh,
7: I, I didn't know until tonight
2: that you love Peter. Yes. Duane knew that days ago. That's why we were there watching tonight and hoping that everything would go as we thought. And I think it would have, but for...
7: Go on. But for what?
2: But for an unfortunate happening.
7: It was my father, wasn't it?
2: You now, Joan, I think you should stay calm. It was
7: Dad. He did something that... Oh, something to... That... Something that hurt Peter. Hurt him badly. Uh... And now he's lost, and so am I. You
2: mustn't despair. Everything will be different when Duane gets here. Oh, where is he? I think he's with your father, and I believe that they're both looking for Peter. Well,
7: we should be helping
2: him. Sometimes, Joan, we help best by doing nothing. Trust me, Joan. Trust Duane. I'm sure that he'll be able to handle this. i that we're in time to help Peter's double return to Peter's physical body. Will that help, Joan? I think so. Now hold it. Now what? He hasn't been back to the tent. Excuse me just a moment. What are you doing? Arranging it so that if Peter's double does make it back here, he can get into the tent and back into Peter's body. Oh, more of your mumbo-jumbo. I'm trying to save a life you almost snuffed out. I saved my daughter's life. Her life was never in danger. I saw that beast throw itself at my Joan... I hadn't fired when I did. You would have seen a miracle. A transformation in that beast. And in your daughter. Dr. Carter, I know your reputation. Reverend, I think we should stop quarreling. Both of us want the same thing. And this isn't doing either Joan or Peter any good. Now, I'm going to need your help. Well, you know I'll do anything I can. All right. But what I'm going to ask you to do, Reverend, will go against your every instinct. I'm going to ask... For your belief, Reverend. In what? In the fact that the double you saw, the werewolf, if you like, meant your daughter no harm. And above all, the fact that he must return to Peter's physical body. Why do you need my help for that? Because you shot him. And although I know he meant Joan no harm, I also know that Sangri must possess other instincts of the wolf. And those instincts will be crying for revenge. Are you telling me that I'm not telling you anything, Reverend? I'm asking you to serve as a stalking horse, to bring Peter within reach, and then, then, to believe that I can handle it. Now, Reverend, you're not going to have any second thoughts about being unarmed. I gave you my word, Carter. Let's get on with it. You go fetch Ernest i'll be all right in that short time i'm sure the lord is watching over me let's hope he's watching over all of us ernie ernie come on out did you find sangri not yet how is joan she's restless she's unhappy but i think under control good now, I think Peter knows the Reverend fired the shot that hurt him and is trailing him to get revenge. I've got the Reverend standing on a promontory over there. If the werewolf comes, I think I can gain control over him and get him back into Peter's body. I hope so. For all our sakes, I hope so.
7: Peter! Oh, be here
2: Joan! Joan, come back here! Let her go. We'll follow her. She'll lead us to him. Carter! Did you hear it? We're coming, Reverend. Hold on.
7: Oh,
4: Peter! Peter, I
2: love, you. I love you. I love you. There, there, it goes into Peter's tent. Let's hope it's in time. What about the Reverend? Joan will take care of him. Peter's the important one now. He's alive. Yes, but look—those marks on his face. Or are they gunshot wounds? They are, they are. The Reverend aimed well. The shots went through his cheeks. Oh, he'll carry the scars for the rest of his life. It was Joan who stopped him. Joan's voice and his love for her. I'm not sure that I would have been able to head him off.
6: I, I've been hurt. My face,
7: it burns. You're going to be just fine. Peter, my love.
2: Joan... You're not frightened of me? Of course not.
7: At first I was. I I didn't really understand. But now I know that I belong with you. And I'll be with you. Always.
2: My face. Don't touch it. Joan, you bathe the wounds with clean water. And they'll heal naturally. Of
7: course. And Dr. Carter, thank you.
2: Ernest, I think we're superfluous around here now. Right, Joan?
7: That's right. Dr. Carter, my father has more need of you. Now, than either Peter or I.
2: And Joan's words proved to be true and not true. As Duane and I came close to Timmy's tent, we heard a voice, the voice of a man praying fervently, praying to his God for forgiveness.
6: And so this tale of a man who unconsciously used a
2: werewolf to further his love's ambitions ended happily. And I no longer flaunt my skepticism. However, I must in all truth say that it's not really the recommended way to go courting, even in today's permissive atmosphere. I'll be back shortly. The following fable is presented to make you want to buy a Buick. From Mom,
6: I got my practical side.
7: Christmas, oh, just get me a nice mop, son. From
6: Dad, I got my
2: fun-loving side. Go fly a kite, kid. So, being practical and fun-loving,
6: naturally, I got a
2: Buick Skylark. Being the only
6: V6-powered American compact, it's very practical. And being a Buick, it's a lot of fun to drive. As Mom says...
7: A wise decision, son. Or
6: as my father would say...
2: Nice car, kid. Let's go shoot some pool. Buick. Dedicated to the free spirit in just about everyone.
6: This is Lloyd Nolan. My son Jay was physically perfect. I guess he was about two years old before we realized that anything was wrong. At first, we thought he was deaf. That's what the parents of most autistic children think. At that time, I don't think we knew any parents of an autistic child. It would have been a great blessing to us to have had a National Society for Autistic Children. Support the National Society, Box eight six four six. Albany, New York, 12208. Magicians are well aware that people love illusion. They want to be fooled. I wonder if
2: any of the great magicians ever wondered why there's such a universal love for magical tricks that seem utterly beyond belief. It's my fancy that we love illusion because we live in hopes that someday something magical will happen to all of us.
6: Cast included Mason Adams, Norman Rose, Marion Seldes, Christopher Tabori and Guy Sorrell.
2: The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. And now a preview of our next tale. Extreme. This is the proof. This is Ridley's.
3: Believe it or not. <laughs> One of the cleverest hunters in nature is the yellow-winged sparrow. When he goes after a grasshopper, he lures it into the open by doing a perfect imitation of the grasshopper's chirp. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a church disaster. It happened February 23rd, 1887 in Dursana Vecchia, Italy. On that day, a furious earthquake rumbled through the town, split open and crumbled the parish church where a service was in progress. The ear-shattering quake completely razed the church, caused the deaths of every single member of the congregation, some 300. Yet the clergyman presiding at the service escaped completely unharmed. Believe it or not. Truth is stranger than fiction. This is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. The Duke of Wharton was a member of the Irish House of Lords for three years before he was old enough to vote in a parliamentary election. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a man who overcame a fantastic physical handicap. Men have overcome enormous physical handicaps. There are true stories of blind mountain climbers, deaf acoustical engineers, and there was Hermann Untham, a native of Prussia, who became a world-famous violinist in the 20th century. Unthen's physical handicap was that he had no arms, yet he mastered the violin and thrilled audiences by playing the instrument with his feet. He could even wind his own watch, believe it or not.
4: (laughs)
0: And that's it for our program tonight why am I hearing huh? and that's going to do it for tonight's edition of Dread Time Stories thank you as always for listening uh, just a quick rundown of what you can expect to hear on Radio for Humans over the next week of course tomorrow night at 7pm Eastern we have uh, Voodoo Zombie Boutique presents Time for Go to Bed with Kenny Pick and Da Suze Followed immediately by... From the Bunker with Jody Hamilton. Friday we have It Came from Cleveland. With an all new, hopefully, mythical moment from yours, Cruelly. Saturday we have Paul's Memory Bank. Oh wait, It Came from Cleveland starts at 7pm Friday night. Of course, all times mentioned on this program and network are Eastern. Anyway, uh, so 7 o'clock tomorrow, uh, Friday night, It Came from Cleveland. Then, Saturday at... 7pm Eastern we have Paul's Memory Bank followed immediately by my music program Midnight Sun and the theme for this week's Midnight Sun is love that's right we're doing our love themed episode uh, love themed set this for this year and it's going to be a doozy um, and of course Tim Coromall's show Mondays and Wednesdays at 8.30 in the morning Eastern and then Tuesdays in primetime at 7... No, 8 Eastern. You'll, of course, find all uh, of our uh, broadcast s- schedule information by going to RadioForHumans.com and clicking on the Broadcast Schedule. And we are in the process of uh, doing some systemic upgrades to Radio for Humans. If you have any suggestions, please feel free to share them. And, of course, as a reminder... All incidental music heard on this program is brought to us courtesy of TabletopAudio.com TabletopAudio.com Music for wherever you podcast, work, or play Dungeons & Dragons. As always, this is yours cruelly wishing you and yours <laughs> This is yours cruelly wishing you and yours until next weekend Next week Unpleasant Dream...